You are now listening to the new voice of reason, Down the Middle, a political podcast with Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation, a podcast about politics, current events, and culture through a lens of moderation, measuredness, and common ground. So sit back and prepare yourself for two guys who prefer intermittent, moderate change over revolution. Two guys who believe diversity of thought is our greatest strength. Are you prepared? Okay, here are your hosts, Justin Siegel and Rob Leifer. All right, we are back. It's Jay and Riz coming to you live for episode 24. Hey, Riz, it's been a while. Hey, buddy. Episode 24, it is December of 2020 and when someone makes a movie about 2020 i want it written by stephen king and directed i'm guessing by quentin tarantino exactly (laughs) yes yes that's that's what 2020 has felt like for sure we are back and we do not have time today for any kind of no pleasantries yeah no pleasantries no pussyfooting around we got to get right into it honest abes let's go when he growed up this tiny babe Folks all called him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, so not much for Honest Abe's this week other than to apologize for our extra week off that we had to take. It is indeed the first time, Jay, in 23 episodes of Down the Middle that we had to take two weeks off in a row. One for Thanksgiving, yeah. yep, and then another for personal reasons, although it really wasn't that personal. The basic story is that I had a choice between a work opportunity that would feed my family for a few months or turning down that opportunity in order to pontificate about politics for two hours for free. So <laughs> I... <laughs> So I chose the more choice. yes, I chose the more financially lucrative endeavor. But this is precisely why you guys have to stop the tape right now. Go to wherever you listen to your podcast, leave us a five star review, and then send an email out to all of your family members and coworkers, imploring that they listen to our podcast. Because if we continue to climb the charts, yeah, perhaps Jay, perhaps. We'll eventually be able to do this for a living. Yeah, you nice know. lead in. That was right. excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You never, ever know. It's but true. until then, life is going to life occasionally. Life but is going to life. life. So yeah, we're, it felt like months. I mean, I know we say that when we take one week off. This yep. was like a desert of news that we had to climb through. Exactly. And a lot happened. So we have a lot to get to. So other than that, Jay, very, very quickly, since people are probably already tired of it, tell them about buying some of our in addition to uh, helping us climb the charts, you can also help us by buying our stuff. You can't see Riz right now, but he is looking good in a black down the middle tee, and you could too. It's not too late to shop for the holidays for your friends and family, so buy some stuff, get it now. Uh, the link is in all of our bios on our socials. Exactly. All right. And with that, let's move on to our favorite segment, your favorite segment, the world's favorite segment, We Care A Lot. All right, Jay. So we really got one and it was kind of like uh, it was kind of like silly, but it's actually not silly to me. So yeah. what was it? Why don't you read it for us? It's from our favorite contributor. Everything is dumb. Oh, I love everything. Everything is dumb. Whoever, if it's a he or she has a lot to say. Yeah. And, and I appreciate it. And I also appreciate seeing their name every single time. Exactly. So the question is uh, very simple. 
Why is Rob so obsessed with avocado toast? <laughs> I love that. Robert, your response. Yes. Okay. So so I did indeed LOL when uh, this one came in. And uh, while it may seem like a silly question to even field, as usual, I will turn something as innocuous as avocado on toast uh, into something political. Before you even start, I, I want to take a, a, just a step back and hone in on why this question was even asked. Um, I don't know, you know, for those that follow Riz and for those that don't, you should. He has discovered the beauty of Instagram <laughs> stories recently. Yeah. We, we should have put this in. I, I, I have uh, upped my Instagram yeah. game and now I am a full, I've developed a style, right, Jay? You certainly have, and it's have great. A style. Yeah. yeah. So if you are not following me, follow me at Rob underscore Lifer. That's L-E-I-F like in Frank E-R yep. at Instagram. And follow my stories because yeah. uh, I got plenty of stories. I'm doing stories left and right. I'm a real storyteller. They're very entertaining. It's great political commentary. And, you know, for the things you don't get from us every day, because it's obviously a weekly show, yeah. you can get some stuff from Riz every single day on what's going on politically. So follow him. The point is, is that he's been posting a lot of photos of avocado toast lately and so i'm guessing that's where this question came from well and mentioning avocado toast yeah, a lot a okay lot so so avocado toast is the sort of quintessential food of the caricature of a bleeding heart woke and probably coastal liberal now yeah. they might have avocado toast on the menu in austin but not as much as they have like in san francisco is it a coastal thing alone? Probably not, but it's probably bigger on the coast. That's my guess, at least. Yeah. Now, I don't think that it's the avocado itself because there's nothing particularly elitist about an avocado. It's, you know, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, a nondescript. Is, is, is it a fruit or a vegetable, an avocado? It's got a seed, right? Yeah. That's a seed in the middle. Yeah, I don't know what that means. means. Yeah, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I think it's a fruit. I'm going to go with fruit. Right, okay. I don't think it's the avocado, but it's probably the fact that it's served on some kind of seven-grain bread, and it helps if one of the grains in that bread is some kind of nut that nobody's ever heard of, like a a sashi inchi nut or something. So, you know, avocado... No, no, that's actually the name of a nut. Yeah, Come on. Uh, It is. So avocado, uh, you know, served on a seven-grain sasha inchi-infused toast topped with saffron fresh and microgreens nice and of course you uh you always eat the avocado toast with a fork and knife which mm-hmm. makes it inherently fancier than the toast they serve at say denny's you know let's let's just say that Fair. so i use avocado toast usually in a joking manner to describe someone who's been liberalized which in today's political climate basically means anyone who has ever disagreed with trump on anything <laughs> so how i'll use the joke to give an example is like take someone like Jim Mad Dog Mattis, Trump's one-time Secretary of Defense, who apparently has had many disagreements with Trump and has indeed spoken out about the fact that Trump is an idiot. So even though I have a feeling you won't find too many liberals in Portland who go by the name Mad Dog, uh, a lot of those in Trump's orbit and in right-wing media were trying to portray Mattis as a Democrat or a liberal when he started speaking out against Trump. And uh, this is when I would use the joke. I'd say something like, he must have come to California, he ordered the avocado toast, and the next day he was a never-Trumper who was telling his kids to choose their own gender. So <laughs> the idea is that the avocado toast was enough. That's what to, does it. 
Right, to, to yeah. turn a guy who, you know, goes by the name Mad Dog into a leftist puppy dog. Yeah, that's essentially what happened. So, yeah, in, in sort of a Sasha Baron Cohen way of caricaturizing uh, or parodying certain personalities that exist in, in Western culture. It's like the, the liberal guy that he... The liberal guy he did on yeah. his recent uh-huh. show. I was yeah. thinking exactly like that, right? Yeah, I, so I use the avocado toast often as a means of characterizing or stereo... You know, you know the sort of stereotypical woke, non-binary, leftist, if you will. Um, But with that, Jay, here's perhaps a more interesting and telling part of this conversation. As I was sort of delving into this question, I thought, Jay will find this even more interesting. You know, I was thinking about what the caricature of a conservative would be in terms of a food item that would embody the spirit of conservatism. And I was thinking, well, here's the thing. See, I was thinking how like 20 years ago, it uh-huh. probably would have been uh, a steak with some kind of cocktail, sure. like an old fashioned or a Negroni yeah. with Mashed a cigar potatoes. for dessert. Right. Yeah. A cigar for dessert, though. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that image does still exist to a certain extent among the more elite capitalist members of the Republican base. Like, mm-hmm. let's, let's, when I think of your dad, I think of that. Fred yeah. Zeidman, who we've had on the show. For sure. Uh, especially uh, a, a friend of the pod and, and editor in chief, Clay Cogman, his yep. dad. I think, you know, for the sure. sort of wine cellar Republicans. Yes. Still- and, and by the way, Michael knows, continue that stereotype exactly that still does exist but i was thinking how as elitist and perhaps even offensive as this may sound Mm -hmm. if i had to paint the caricature today in 2020 of what i think of when i think about conservatives i think cracker barrel waffle house and olive garden that's what i think fair Right. And and if you're a conservative listening to this in middle America, you might take offense to that and think I sound like a pompous ass. And I'm by no means sneering at the people who frequent those eateries, but I'm using it to point out the dramatic shift in persona that Mm -hmm. has occurred on the American right. In 1985, it was a fine steak dinner and a Cuban cigar. In 2020, it's Denny's. It just is. I'm sorry. And I'm not in any way insinuating that people in middle America were ever part of the fine steakhouse and cigar crowd because they weren't. But they also weren't the embodiment or persona of the Republican Party and of conservatism in the way that they are now. And that's perhaps a big part of the Trump effect. So uh, before we move on from this, I just want to do a little bit of culture corner here for a minute. This is a little little, uh, segment within a segment, and we're going to come back for a full culture corner later. That's my favorite. Right. But I was flipping channels the other night, and uh-huh. I landed on one of our uh, personal favorite movies, American Psycho, uh, which which was a book, as most of you probably know, by Brett Easton Ellis, uh, made into a movie starring the great, starring the great uh, Christian Bale as uh, Slash Pat- Gavin Newsom. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Christian Bale plays, plays Patrick Bateman, as you probably know. Uh, if you've seen the movie or read the book, you'll appreciate this. If you haven't, stop everything you're doing right now. Don't listen anymore to this podcast. Put go go rent it or do whatever. I gotta go return some videotapes, but. <laughs> Go do whatever you need to do to watch the movie because it's it's one of the best. It's one of our favorites. Our you know like our circle of friends is one of our personal favorites. But anyway, uh, the setting of the movie is in that sort of decadent eighties period of Manhattan, right. and it's it's the story of a, right. It's the story of a bunch of young guys who were very much also playing a sort of caricature of the young sort of Reagan esque mm-hmm. capitalist materialist eighties Wall Street investors, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about how for most of my life. I thought of those guys as Republicans. Like when I thought of the caricature of your sort of capitalist Republican, I thought about Patrick Bateman sure. and Timothy Bryce from yeah. American Psycho, right? Yeah. And and here's the thing. Those guys are Democrats now. And this is the shift that has happened. Democratic politicians 
are the ones giving the high price speeches on Wall Street and big banks and investment firms give more money to Democrats now than Republicans by orders of magnitude. So if that movie, American Cycle, or that book was made today, They'd the character, uh, yeah, I mean, the characters would be woker, of course. They'd yeah. be more environmentally aware and so on and so forth, but they'd be Democrats. And there's sort of a foreshadowing, a, a brilliant foreshadowing of this shift in the movie in the way in which Patrick Bateman is portrayed. Because, you know, inside, in his soul, he's a greedy, insecure, self-centered sociopath. Mm -hmm. But on the outside, he's constantly attempting to portray himself as both socially conscious and politically correct, as well as successful. Like, when one of his friends makes an anti-Semitic remark, he's the first one to, like, scold him and be like, oh, Mm -hmm. don't do that. Then there's that scene where he's eating dinner with his girlfriend's friends who happen to be like artists from Soho. Yeah. Remember Stash? They, oh, this is Stash, my artist friend from Soho. <laughs> and they were sort of playing the caricature of the 80s era liberals, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time that the other people at the table are sort of mocking the artist people for being concerned with too much corporate influence in New York over their art, Patrick Bateman is trying to pass himself off as somebody who's deeply concerned with atrocities that are going on around the world, like Sri Lanka. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so even though he know, even though we all know he actually isn't. So I think what this foreshadows is the idea that you can be rich and elitist, but also simultaneously woke to the pressing social issues of the day. And that is sort of a description of the Democratic Party in 2020, isn't it? I mean, rich, highly educated, elitist yeah. and woke to the pressing social social issues of the day. Well, that was amazing. Way to tie avocado toast into yeah. the theme of the show. It's very impressive. Very, thank well you. Done. Thank you. I do, I do that kind of stuff all the time. So uh, moving on, uh, we promised you on our last episode that we'd be bringing this back a lot and that this segment would be a regular part of our show. It's time to get into some of the current events of the day. Here is Turn On The News. So if you are living under a rock, you're completely unaware of the fact that Trump has still refused to concede and, in fact, is claiming that he won in a landslide still. Uh, It seems like step one, Jay, was to claim the election was stolen. Step two was to file all kinds of lawsuits. When those lawsuits all inevitably failed because all the judges in America are eating too much avocado toast. Uh, Step three (laughs) was to pressure state legislatures to subvert the will of the people and have their electors vote for Trump anyway. Now, this has apparently failed. uh, And so it seems like step five or what was this, four or five, whatever. The next step is to have states actually sue other states that may have supposedly engaged in unconstitutional behavior. So, Jay, why don't you break down some of this for us and tell us where things stand with the lawsuits and everything else? Would love to. So since we last spoke, there's been lots of movement but truly not much has changed. The big shift in strategy from the Trump campaign has been to go after the certification of the state's election results, as you alluded to. So far, this has not been fruitful. Federal judges in both Michigan and Georgia on Monday denied Republican efforts to undo the certification of both states, rejecting two lawsuits filed by Trump supporter Sidney Powell. 
In the Michigan case, U.S. District Judge Linda Parker said the allegations of fraud were based on, quote, nothing but speculation and conjecture, and that, quote, a belief is not evidence and falls short of the kind of allegation necessary to support the motion to undo certification. She also added, quote, this ship has sailed, alluding the late <laughs> filing of the suit. Yeah. I also heard that they, like, forgot to, to put in a filing fee. How the hell does that happen? Like, I read about that today. Like, so, some clerical error, and they forgot to, like, insert the check. I'm, I'm just going to remind you who's running the... Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, there you go. So, in Georgia, District Judge Timothy Batten said, quote, they asked the court to order the Secretary of State to decertify the election results as if such a mechanism exists, and I find that it does not. Yeah. <laughs> so he's pretty clear on that one. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court just yesterday denied a request from Pennsylvania Republicans to block certification of the Commonwealth's election results. Tuesday's one-line order was issued with no noted dissents or comments from any of the nine justices, which could be a signal that the Supreme Court is staying out of the way of these election-related disputes. The order reads as follows, quote, the application for injunctive relief presented to Justice Alito and by him referred to the court is denied. 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 Does it? That's all they said. Yeah. It's important to also note that yesterday was the safe harbor deadline. We discussed this briefly in our last episode. This is a provision inscribed in federal law that requires states to resolve all election-related disputes before the Electoral College meets in order for the results to be considered conclusive. The safe harbor date always falls six days before the Electoral College gathers to cast votes for president and vice president, which this year set for December 14th, and therefore December 8th was the safe harbor date. And as of the time of this recording, all states but Wisconsin have met that deadline due to a Trump campaign lawsuit on a state level. The suit was rebuffed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court last week, but is set for arguments before a state circuit court on Thursday. So as you mentioned, also happening yesterday in what this podcaster would call the more alarming of these lawsuits. Yeah. Texas has announced that it will be filing a lawsuit in the Supreme Court against four battleground states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The suit argues that the states should not be allowed to cast their votes in the Electoral College because they unconstitutionally changed their voting procedures during the pandemic to allow for increased mail-in ballots. Now, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has asked the Supreme Court to delay Monday's deadline for the Electoral College to make Biden's victory official. The suit was filed directly with the Supreme Court as the court has exclusive jurisdiction over legal disputes between states, which is called original jurisdiction. Right. As of today, 17 states have filed motions backing Texas, and Trump has now asked to, uh, he, he asked the court to let him join the lawsuit as well. Right. Now, while this appears to be both a Hail Mary and a publicity stunt, and while I don't expect it to make a bit of difference, this is an extremely frightening thing to me. Mm -hmm. A state suing other states over the Constitution. Now, this age has seen states sue each other over water runoff, boundary disputes, resource disputes, bond disputes, contract disputes, and small debt disputes, but it has not seen a claim such as this one yet. Now, we don't know if the Supreme Court will even hear arguments in this case, but it brings up an interesting question. What does a civil war look like in this day and age? Yeah. Is this it? Or is this the beginning of it? Because there's a chance that the Supreme Court declines to hear the case, and it's the last we hear of it. But there's also a chance that this creates a greater problem which is when you can start to see the narrative on the right becoming very dangerous. If these people aren't okay with allowing these claims to go through the court system, or if they do and they don't net the result they want, then what? Do they claim that our court system is untrustworthy? And where do we go from there? I see it as an incredibly dangerous thing and an incredibly dangerous time. Riz, what do you think? 
Yeah, you know, I'm going to go with the publicity stunt and Hail Mary. I think it's disgusting that people like Ted Cruz, who were once respected, are really going along with this. I think they just don't know what to do because Trump has such a hold on his base. And that's why you see so many, you know, people have asked me, I've been getting emails like, you know, and messages like, why is there so few Republicans who will say President-elect Biden? I think they're just really frightened. They're acting mm-hmm. like a bunch of of sissy little kids. I mean, they just they don't know what to do. So, yeah. But with that, it is uh, it's a, this is a dangerous time. You might be right. That's interesting about the new uh, uh, a new way of conducting a civil war. Who, sure. do, who knows? I mean, that's that's crazy. You know, as we've been talking about the last couple of episodes, there is a special election in Georgia that will decide uh, whether the Senate is controlled by Republicans or Democrats. As most of you know, uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are the Republicans running against Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, respectively. So one of Trump's illustrious attorneys, Lynn Wood, uh, was down in Georgia giving a speech encouraging Georgians to not vote in this runoff election that decides the fate of the Senate and thus the country because Leffler and Purdue aren't being Trumpy enough, basically. So here's what Lynn Wood sounded like. If you haven't heard this, here's Lynn Wood giving this brilliant speech. Where's Kelly Loeffler here? Where's David Purdue? He ought to be standing right here. Those two people want your vote, then they ought to tell you what we're telling Brian Kemp. Get a special session of the legislature now. Do not be fooled twice. This is Georgia. We ain't dumb. We're not going to go vote on January 5th in another machine made by China. You're not going to fool Georgians again. If Kelly Loeffler wants your vote, if David Perdue wants your vote, they've got to earn it. If Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue do not do it, they have not earned your vote. Don't you give it to them. Why would you go back and vote in another rigged election? For God's sakes, fix it. So, uh, Jay, I have a feeling you're going to want to rant a little bit about this. How do you feel about this? Boy, do I. (laughs) I'll keep it short, but I guess you can count this as a mini Jay's Ranterific ride. So, you know, as you heard, Lynn Wood say, don't be fooled twice. This is Georgia. We ain't dumb. Okay, well, yes, you are. <laughs> what are you doing? You didn't get your way in court because no one can present any justifiable evidence at all, and so you're just going to burn it all down? You're going to hand the entire government over to the Democrats to do whatever they want with it? We were planning on napping for a few years. We had this country right where it made sense, a little gridlock amongst friends, because what's a little gridlock amongst friends? But no, you're so upset about not getting your way, you're going to cut your nose off to spite your face. That is incredibly stupid and short-sighted, and this is one of the many reasons why Trumpism itself is dangerous and pointless, and you are proving that there are far too many uneducated, uninformed, ridiculous people populating this movement. These baseless conspiracy theories have got to stop. The deep state is not infiltrated the Georgia runoff election or the GOP or the RNC. Republicans in Georgia, go vote. I shouldn't have to tell you this. Purdue and Loeffler should not have to earn your vote by claiming that the presidential election was rigged. Vote in this election because it's right and good for our country. Stop being a bunch of whiny, victimy, sore losers. Go bother some other country. Okay, rant over. 
Wow, good job, Jay. A bunch of snowflakes. Yeah, you know, this is this is another example of the similarities that exist between leftism and Trumpism. Absolutely. And, and there are many, and, and, and we're going to touch on more of them in the topic of the day later in this episode. But I always say, it's sort of a famous uh, thing that I say at this point, people, I, I should have a, a shirt that says this. Yeah. And I, what I say is that leftism eats itself, and leftists eat their own before they eat you. Mm-hmm. Because you can never be woke enough for the far left. They will come for the woke but not woke enough crowd before they come for the not woke at all crowd. So does that make sense? In other words, yeah. the not sufficiently woke is a greater enemy to the leftist than the person who isn't woke at all. It's a big reason why a lot of the Bernie Bernie bros hated Hillary Clinton more than they hated Trump. You know, Trumpism, same thing. If you're a conservative or a Republican who agrees with Trump on maybe a number of different policies, but doesn't like his persona and doesn't think he's good for the country or don't want to get on board with attempting to perform a coup to save Trump's ego, (laughs) you're even worse than a Democrat. You're mm-hmm. a rhino, a Republican in name only, because yeah. you're not sufficiently Trumpy enough. And just like with leftism, they will eat you first before they eat Nancy Pelosi. That's that's the bottom line. It's the yeah. same thing. It's it comes insane. from the it's same place. How, how similar yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Trump's rhetoric in the wake of losing this election has been like nothing anyone has ever seen, at least in modern history. We don't have videos or tapes of what was going on before modern history. Maybe this kind of stuff happened all the time. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the history books would 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 say that if they if it did. On top of claiming the entire election was a hoax without any real evidence, uh, he's now taken to calling the United States a third world country. So uh, this is what a report from that incident sounded like. Our politics lead now. President Trump is spending his final weeks in office ignoring the scale of the COVID crisis publicly. Instead, he is defying every shred of evidence, insisting even today that he won the election and we're rounding the curve. Neither are true. As Caitlin Collins reports, the president, the outgoing president, is consumed by the fight to overturn the election results. Still fuming about the election, President Donald Trump compared the U.S. to a third world country today as he appeared to acknowledge that his legal efforts to change the results have gone nowhere. Now, this was like from a third world nation, and I think the case has been made, and now we find out what we can do about it. But the case hasn't been made. Trump and his allies have lost or withdrawn at least 40 court cases since the election. Yeah. But the case hasn't been made. So is any of this good for the country, Jay? I mean, I know we said we wouldn't give too much oxygen to all of Trump's craziness, Mm -hmm. but now we're sort of crossing a line here, right? I mean, it's hard to do a show about politics without mentioning the fact that the current president of the United States is saying that the United States is like a third world country. Could you imagine if George Bush said that? Like, then then today, and this is the best, today he tweeted out perhaps one of my favorite tweets of his presidency. Yeah, he yeah said, I think I know which one you're talking yeah, about. He said, quote, if somebody cheated in the election, which the Democrats did, why wouldn't the election be immediately overturned? How can a country be run like this? LOL. I mean, <laughs> this is the greatest self own ever. How can a country be run like this? You run the country. This is the essence of Trumpism. It's him and everyone around him are 
almost act as if he has no power over anything. He's the president of nothing. He's just a figurehead. So how was he supposed to know? Like, and he's been talking about this stuff for so long. Why didn't he get in there and make sure everything that he knew was going to happen wouldn't happen? Of course. You know, he had the power to do that. So anyway, Jay, the the original question, is any of this good for the country? Not, Not a single word of it is good for the country. The only thing that's good for the country is that the court system is doing its job. But yeah. what's really bad is is the rhetoric that's still coming out of uh, of the West Wing, yeah. uh, and and people are buying it, which is even worse. I mean, people that I know that are that are smart people that are conservatives that usually don't buy his shtick are mm-hmm. buying it. So I know. you can really tell that it's getting through. It's it it's taking hold. It's taking hold. And you know, YouTube today. Eh, this is sort of a sidebar, maybe something we a road we don't want to go down today. But YouTube today decided to pull anything that yeah. mentions uh, a stolen election or a rigged election, which obviously that see that kind of thing. First of all, it's it's too late because it's already implanted in it's everyone's there. brain. Yeah, so that you, you acted too late, YouTube. And 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 who's watching YouTube for news? I mean, like right, the media exactly. is the, they're, they're still saying this, of course. But secondly, it adds fuel to the fire of the right wing uh, press and people on the right who already think all these companies are biased against completely. Them. It so does no it, good. it yeah. does it does no good. And it, 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 frankly, it's still as we discussed. I think we both landed a few episodes ago when we talked about this. It still is un-American yeah. to 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 uh, you know in imp- to censor in that way exactly. So on this topic, meaning on the topic of of, of Trump and Trumpism, the right wing media is playing an important role, of course, and it seems as though many in the right wing media sphere have sort of laid down their plans for how they intend to move forward over the next four years. Uh, so you have the sensible and serious ones like Ben Shapiro, who mm-hmm. have barely mentioned Trump outside of detailing the ongoing election related lawsuits uh, since the election and, and and have really moved on to the more typical stance we're used to seeing from conservative media when a Democrat wins the presidency, which is just the full scale attack on Biden and every single individual who is being considered for his cabinet, which we'll get to a little bit. Now, I've actually been impressed with Daily Wire and even Daytime Fox, frankly, uh, that they haven't really gone down the Trump rabbit hole and started parroting all of Trump's insane theories and instead have, again, moved on or moved back, as it were, to exploring all the evils and idiocy of liberalism. So, you know, which, again, is, is what we would expect from from the right wing press. Yeah, it's, it's, it's business as usual. At least it's not, you know, Trumpism takes everything. Exactly. Business as usual, as usual, is 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 the uh, the preferred standard, at least for mm-hmm. me. So but then there are the bitter clingers. And yeah. we, ha- we have to talk about this because we have to remember that there are probably Probably hundreds, if not more, maybe even you know several hundred uh, media figures who have staked their entire career on Donald Trump, yeah. and th- that was very unique in the Trump era. You didn't have people who did that with George W. Bush. You know, he was just a Republican president who they supported. But with Trump, a lot of these right wing media figures and activists went all in on Trump and Trumpism. And now that he's lost, I think they have a serious dilemma on their hands as to how they remain relevant and continue to have a career post-Trump. Because mm-hmm. remember, everyone is worried about their career and what's going to happen after this. Absolutely. So 
because they can't just move on to Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz now because those guys don't fit the molds of what they've been espousing as the winning trait that Trump possesses, which mm-hmm. is Trumpism. So until they find another political figure that embodies all of the same characteristics as Trump, I think their strategy is to not only parrot every single thing Trump says, but double down on the stolen election concept and drag this out for the next four years constantly revealing more, quote, bombshell evidence, but never actually getting anywhere with it, never bringing it to any court, never actually having success with it, just keeping the insinuation alive and keep, you know, sort of going down that rabbit hole that Mm -hmm. this happened, this happened, coming up with more evidence. Now, this is bad for what you were hoping would happen, Jay. Yeah, it's it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. And I think the truth is that if Trump had gone down in an absolute landslide and not actually improved his numbers exactly from 2016 right. a different story yeah, yeah. There, there would have been a much better chance at least that republican yeah. officials and media characters would have walked away and put mm-hmm. him in the rear view and perhaps even come out of the closet and reveal just how dangerous a force he was um and how they were embarrassed to have gone along with it for all those years but because that didn't happen and the idea of election tampering and a stolen election has, like we talked about, already taken hold on the majority of the Republican base, there's no need for them to do that. I don't think there's going to be any pivot back to classic conservatism anytime soon. I think the Republicans are going to go along with Trump's worst instincts over the next four years and then endorse him in 2024. That is my prediction. He is your 2024 candidate. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's very, very plausible. And I think Mm -hmm. that that actually happened before uh, anything about a rigged election came out even before he spoke the words at the press conference when Mike yeah. Pence gave him that look. This happened the minute that number of Americans voted for him. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the the bases that he captured and the the yeah. you know the Cubans in in Miami and yeah. the, these groups that you know this was not a a straight win for the Democrats as we continue to say. And I think what we saw, despite the fact that they won the presidency, was an endorsement of Trumpism essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I and, think you're right. And and that put Donald Trump, even though he lost, in a position of power because he captured something that has a base and, yeah. a, and a very vivid, uh, lively, yeah. you know, exciting base. That, you, that you, can, those are all very nice words to describe <laughs> them, but yes. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's what people are looking for. It's engagement, yeah. you know. No, I get it. And so that has unfortunately been the modus operandi of the republican mm-hmm. party like this is our base now let's go after them and double that's down not getting, yeah the double yeah, down double down yeah to the chagrin i have to believe of some of these other Repu- younger republicans who had presidential aspirations yeah they're gonna have to wait at least another probably eight years because uh and some of them are young enough to do that but uh it's gonna be interesting to see as 2024 rolls closer mm-hmm. will there be such pressure on those people to endorse trump because, I mean, at the moment, I can't picture anyone else moving in there and getting the support that Trump has. He has totally. such a firm hold on the party. So, Or, or is, he, is he the candidate? Because I've heard conversations I've had with people. Is it him? Is it Junior? Is it Ivanka? Is it, it interesting? Who knows? Yeah, I think it's going to be him. He, his ego is too much to let one of his kids do it. Sure. Um, yeah. Now, although people like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, the, the, the primetime hosts on Fox News, uh, have been willing to go along with 
at least some of Trump's rhetoric since he lost the election. The daytime Fox hosts, like I mentioned, have been a lot better about this. And they are actually calling Biden the president-elect and fighting back a little bit when it comes to Trump's bullying. Now, this, of course, has led to Trump claiming that Fox has lost their way and has become just another lamestream news network that, quote, doesn't get it. He loves saying, he says this all the time, they don't get it. They don't get it, which basically means that... Yeah, it is whatever he says. <laughs> well, well, what he means by that is that they don't get that the best political tactic, at least according to Trump, is to lie to people and tell them what they want to hear. He wants a media corporation to, quote, get it by never fact-checking any of his bullshit and by consciously pushing unprovable debunked conspiracy theories to the base because frankly the sad part is that it works yeah and by and by the way not only does it work but he we we've heard enough reports coming out of the white house and even prior and enough movies enough articles that this man requires absolute loyalty and what does absolute loyalty mean to him it means you will lie you will do whatever it is Mm -hmm. uh as long as you take his position that's what absolute loyalty means to this man and that is what he demands if you are going to be around him. 100%. And, you know, all of this works politically because people want to believe in conspiracy theories. And we'll get to that in a minute. But enter OANN and Newsmax. If you feel that Fox News is just too leftist for you, (laughs) OANN and Newsmax have got you covered. It is wall to wall, 24-7, bat crazy, Trumpy, conspiracy laden, low budget bull. And apparently, people love it already. Did you hear today that they they uh, their ratings were higher than Fox yeah. last week? Yep. Like, people are loving it. So, okay, Jay, I forced my... We have to talk about this a little, because I forced myself to watch a little Newsmax a week or so ago, and I think yeah. you did too. I did. Um, dude, it actually really frightened me, because there's there's something eerily Third Reichish about yes, it to me. incredibly. Right. When I turned it on, it was a documentary on the rise of Donald Trump to power, right. which just, exactly. it looked, it was so Scary, that vibe. Right? It was terrifying. Yeah. So Newsmax and OANN are, are sort of the Trumpification of America. It is a full on state run po- propaganda suite. And yeah. there's something very unsettling about that, deeply unsettling. And I don't think we've ever seen it before. Uh, again, at least in modern history and, no. you know, before modern history, there wasn't television. So we, we definitely never saw it then. Um, but beyond that, I started noticing that a lot of the stuff attached to Trump has a very sort of low budget, extremely tacky feel to it, sort of like an all you can eat buffet at a Vegas casino. And, and, and I'm not talking about le, like the Bellagio or the Wynn Hotel. Like I'm talking about the all you can eat buffet at Harris or Circus Circus. Yeah, like no, kids and grandma circus. eat half price. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, that buffet, right? Like you know what I you know what I mean? Like if if you if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google North Korean media and watch a little bit of it. The That's color a great schemes yeah. and the aesthetic nature of it is very similar to sort of the entire Trump verse, like. It has a dated. It has a dated aspect to it, which it, is interesting. It does. Because at least in China, we know they're working with like crappy equipment right. that they have from you know forever ago. Right. That's the answer. <laughs> Here, I don't know what the issue it's is. It's weird. It's like even when you look at the Trump flags flying all over the place and the signs and the hats, they all have a similar sort sort of gaudy aesthetic to it. To I know the, what it is. You know what it the is. The colors and the fonts. It's the same aesthetic as the Chuck E. Cheese menu. <laughs> it really is but but enlighten me what is it jay it's all made in china maybe it is it has you know you know when you go and uh, 
this granted this is a little bit racist but you guys have to bear with us because we're not racist here we're you know we're we're pretty reasonably woke but when you go to asian restaurants especially like in like Koreatown, yeah. they have they have in LA, they have like those signs outside mm-hmm. that are like you know chicken, and it's all like bold and it has like yeah, those the same type colors. All it's uh-huh. it, it, there's something about it that just is very low rent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and with that, I wanted to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories for a second because oh boy, here yeah, we go because I think they go hand in hand with Trumpism. and are tied in with this general aesthetic that I'm talking about here. It's the formation of a cult, honestly. Mm -hmm. And the cult has visual elements to it that I think sort of trigger certain people's brains in the same way that candy wrappers are designed to trigger kids' brains. You know, like Newsmax is, when you watch Newsmax, it's in the club. It's part of that aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. So two friends of the pod reached out to me this week with feedback that relates to this. One of them told me, that she found a QAnon book in her parents' house and that she was pretty startled by it. Now, QAnon, very briefly, if you guys don't know, is it has 300,000 members at this point, according to the FBI. They basically believe that the Democrats are running a child pedophile ring and that Donald Trump is exposing it through subliminal messages in his tweets. This is what these people believe. So this friend of the pod saw one of these books in her in in her it's parents' house, and was oh, sort yeah. of startled by it. She listens to the pod, so I think uh, she was like, "Yeah, that, so that's good news." I, I found that it was a good weekend. Uh, and the second person, uh, friend of the pod, we used to play music with, actually, yeah. uh, told me that he has friends who are decorated retired military members, respectable mm-hmm. people in the community, who have completely fallen prey to this sort of internet underworld, and are sending him articles from like WorldViewWeekend.com yeah. and other crazy trusted lunatic, sources, right? Yeah. Other cra- crazy lunatic conspiracy sites that claim that there's a new world order in the works and yes. this one world government baloney. Yeah, this is this is the real narrative that's going right. around. I've heard it this. It is, it is. And I think this phenomenon the great is, reset. Yeah, the great reset. That's another yeah. that's a big you'll you see that all the time. Stop the steal. You know, and I think this phenomenon is partially the result of Trump because one, he is one of these people that believe in this stuff. Yeah. And two, he understands that winking and nodding towards it is an excellent political strategy for him. But of course, right, right. But of course, as I always say, the clock didn't start ticking at Trump. So before Trump came on the scene, I read a book, it's a few years ago, called Conspiracies by an author named Andy Thomas. And the book really takes a deep dive into what it is about the human condition that instinctively seeks out conspiracies. And I really want to go into it fully on an upcoming episode because I think you guys will find it interesting. I'm also trying to get a guy named Christian Picciolini on the show. He was the founder of several white nationalist groups in the 90s who trafficked in a lot of common conspiracy theories that we all know, most of which centered around the evil nature of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became an activist and an author and runs a program called Erasing Hate, where he actually infiltrates white nationalist groups all over the world and attempts to turn them around. He's a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant speaker. He has a TED Talk. You guys can listen to Christian Picciolini. He has several books. One of them is called White American Youth that I read. He has responded to my email and wants to come yep. on the show. Very so exciting. I'm just trying to secure a date with him. Once that happens, we will finally bring you our long-fabled conspiracy theory I don't, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> Before we move on, speaking of conspiracy theories, 
Wasn't Trump supposed to release the JFK documents? Am I making that up? Wasn't that a thing? <laughs> there was also, did you see that report today? I think it was from Israel, actually, that uh, it was a couple of days ago that Trump had communicated with extraterrestrials. Aliens, yeah, I heard yeah. about this. <laughs> right? I didn't but, pay much but, attention but to it. The, but yeah. the Israeli scientist said the world wasn't ready, so he should yeah. keep it under wraps. Like, Trump could keep anything under wraps. Like, the second I read that, I was like, there's no yeah, way. He would be spilling the beans right now. Yeah. Like, he'd be like, all right, I lost the election. Well, guess what? There's extraterrestrial life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys have all been duped. There's aliens walking around. The Democrats are the aliens. And I'm pardoning them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pardoning them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We could go on here forever. So, moving on and going back to the news now, it looks like President-elect Biden's cabinet is filling out a little bit. Now, so Jay, why don't you bring us up to speed on how that's going, and then we'll discuss a little bit about the right and left reaction to Biden's cabinet picks. All right, good. So, first up, we have Anthony Blinken as Secretary of State, a longtime Biden aide and key member of the campaign team. He is a moderate and well-regarded by the State Department and foreign diplomats. He served on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration and was Democratic Staff Director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Biden was chairman. For Secretary of Homeland Security, we have Alejandro Mayorkas, who was the Deputy Secretary of the same department under Obama. Might be a tough road to confirmation for Mayorkas, who helped oversee uh, DACA and had zero Republican senators vote to confirm him as deputy in 2013. There's also a report that found Mayorkas was going around normal agency channels in order to give special consideration to groups and individuals in the EB-5 program. So we'll see about that. Yeah. For the position of ambassador to the UN, we have Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who has spent 35 years in the Foreign Service, including an ambassadorship to Liberia, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and a position in the State Department as a Human Resources Official. For Director of National Intelligence, we have Avril Haines who would become the highest-ranking woman in the U.S. intelligence community and the first female director. She is a former Deputy National Security Advisor and Deputy CIA Director. Prior to that, she worked at a strategic advisory firm under Biden's pick for Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. She may draw some controversy from her role in Obama's use of drone strikes to target terrorists, and before that was involved on the intelligence side of the Senate investigation of the CIA's use of torture after September 11th, so Could be a rocky confirmation as well. We'll see. As special climate envoy, we have none other than John Kerry. That's right, Uh, folks. John Kerry. Can I do my John Kerry impersonation? Yeah, so you you guys already know my Bernie Sanders. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I'm going to be bringing that back a lot, hopefully, um, because Bernie's been been a little bit outspoken. But John Kerry, I'm John Kerry, and I believe in climate science because I'm John Kerry, and I like movies made by Al Gore, and I am going to be the new climate czar, and I'm going to bring us back to a time when climate change was real because i'm john gary so yeah that's that's uh, my john gary that's yeah. i'm looking forward to hearing more of that <laughs> thank you thank you so as we all know john Kerry was former secretary of state under obama and chief negotiator at the paris accords prior to that we served in the senate for 28 years most of them uh with president-elect biden for treasury secretary we have former federal reserve chair janet yellen a trusted figure among both sides of the aisle yeah, and wall yep, street yep. And if confirmed, she will be the country's first female Treasury Secretary and an extremely solid choice for the position. In the OMB Director's Chair, we have Neera Tandon, a Democratic operative who has a great deal of policy experience and a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and former Domestic Policy Director for Obama in 2012 and First Lady Hillary Clinton before that. 
She has some controversy attached to her, though, because she said a bunch of really nasty things about Republicans on, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, but the Republicans are already saying over my dead body, but we're gonna, we're, we're gonna, you know, vote for her. God forbid, Riz, any Republicans say any crazy things on Twitter. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so for Health and Human Services, we have Xavier Becerra. Becerra has spent 25 years in the House of Representatives, uh, and he was chair of the Democratic Caucus. He sat on House Ways and Means, overseeing health issues. He also served as AG of California, replacing Kamala Harris. This could be a very tough confirmation due to Becerra's history of advocacy in the pro-choice arena. Yeah. For Defense Secretary, we saw today, we have Lloyd Austin, a former four-star officer who was the first black general to command an army division in combat and the first to oversee an entire theater of operations. He would also be the first black person to lead the Pentagon if confirmed. General Austin ran U.S. Central Command before retiring in 2016 and worked with Biden when he served as VP. So I'll run through uh, the next two that we know about. Uh, okay. Tom Vilsack for Agriculture Secretary, who served as Agriculture Secretary for eight years under Obama. There and for Secretary of HUD, Representative Marsha Fudge, an Ohio congressman, former mayor, and holder of a great last name. Okay. Yeah. So basically, generally, no, yeah. uh, all pretty much a bunch of moderates, right? Nobody really controversial, correct? Little corners of controversy, but sure. Okay. But pretty much moderates, which to me at least falls in line with what I've been saying about a potential Biden presidency from day one. It's the Warren G. Harding return to normalcy presidency. Right. We're going to give you an old moderate guy you've known for years. We're going to fill his cabinet with sort of run of the mill government people. And instead of shaking things up, we're going to bring things back to normal. That's yeah. that's what it is. And I do have to mention, however, the the pivot in narrative that has taken place on the right from some Republican politicians. It's it's hilarious. So Josh Hawley, who uh, wants to run for president one day and is the current Republican junior senator from Missouri mm-hmm. uh, or Missouri. Or, you know, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that on this show. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, he was on Tucker Carlson's show in August, all right, and said the following, quote, I'm worried about Biden because I believe he will be enthralled to the Marxist left. He then went on to talk about how Biden will cave to the AOCs of the party and turn America into a communist slash socialist state. So Biden plans to nominate Janet Yellen as the (laughs) Treasury Secretary. And when asked about this, and she's extremely moderate, and when asked about this on Fox, Josh Howley said, quote, my concern over what I'm seeing from VP Biden is the people who he wants to be in his cabinet are all a bunch of corporate liberals and and warmongers. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, you just can't make this up. Like, this is politics, folks, okay? He went... From Biden and his administration will be a bunch of communists to Biden and his administration. Yeah, they're they're going to be a bunch of rich corporate capitalists with their free markets and flexing of military might. Whatever works for him, you know, whatever works for him. That's politics. Like this, this is why politics is such a cynical, why people are so cynical about politics. Like, it's, it's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's basically where we are. Meanwhile, the progressives are, as we expected, very disappointed so far. Apparently, both Bernie. Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are being frozen out of potential cabinet positions. If they're unhappy, I'm happy. 
Right. <laughs> so, right, exactly. I, I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. Like, I have personally seen a lot of my Bernie bro friends uh, being very vocal about their disappointment, you mm-hmm. know, claiming that it's the same as always. They get nothing they want. So 2024, Jay, is going to be a nightmare because we're going to likely have Trump back on the scene and a Republican Party that is too afraid of him to challenge him. Yep. So I think he'll likely be the nominee. And then on the left, we're going to have a, to completely relitigate the progressive versus moderate debate and the social Socialists will, as always, feel that they are being slighted because they always feel that way. So good times, Jay. Good times for all. It's something Can't to look wait. forward to. It'll keep the podcast going. To it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it will. For sure. We'll have plenty to talk about. We'll have plenty sure. to talk about. That's, that is definitely for sure. So now one more thing I want to say on Biden's cabinet picks. There is a whole chorus of folks on the left in elected political office and civil rights leaders who are uh, imploring that Biden fill his cabinet with diversity. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, course, the leftist point of view of this is diversity of skin, color, you know, diversity of race, diversity of sex, diversity of sexual orientation, but never diversity of thought. Right. Right. So, you know, I, I would much prefer diversity of thought and and give not a single about any of the other kinds of diversity. Agreed. But but I'll get to that in a moment. So Biden was asked about this at a press conference. And here's what the question and his response sounded like. You are facing a lot of pressure to add more diversity uh, to your administration. You have civil rights groups and lawmakers uh, t- pushing you to do this, uh, to make, make sure that you make good on your promise. Uh, and you look at your cabinet announcement so far, and they have included some diverse figures, but I specifically want to hone in on those big four. And so far, uh, when it comes to Secretary of State and Treasury, you have nominated a white man and a white woman. So looking at Attorney General and the Department of Defense, would you commit to nominating a person of color for those positions? Look, it's each one of these uh, groups' jobs to push push their leaders to make sure there's greater diversity. What I can promise you is when this is all said and done, you see everyone that I've announced and it's going to be in the next several weeks, we'll have it all out there, you're going to see significant diversity. I'm not going to tell you now exactly what I'm going to do in any department, but I promise you, it'll be the single most diverse cabinet based on race, color, based on uh, gender that's ever existed in the United States of America. Now, do you mind if I rant here for a second, Jay? Please do. Okay, so give me just a hair of Cowboys from Hell. Okay, so I've said before, and I'll say again, if the Democrats want to successfully transition into the future and grow their coalition, they'll cut this kind of crap out. It is antithetical to American values to fill key positions of an administration in the most powerful nation on earth based on physical qualities that someone is born with and not on the content of their character or their ability to do the job. It's antithetical to what anyone who's familiar with the work of Martin Luther King Jr. would consider productive. It's counterproductive. It is, in fact, racist, sexist, homophobic, and bigoted to even consider the race, gender, color, or sexual orientation of a cabinet member as even a small piece of that person's attributes. It should be completely eliminated. From the thought process, this line of thinking uh, is a disease, quite honestly, and I do not believe for a single minute that most people think like this in their everyday lives. I happen to be Jewish, culturally so, not religiously, Jay. Uh, but but my ethnicity is Jewish. I did the 23andMe, came back 100% Ashkenazi Jew. Couldn't be more Jew- Jewish if you tried. Jewish is fucking Tevye. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
Now, now uh, those who don't know, Jews per capita are the victims of more hate crimes than any other ethnic group in both America and worldwide. But with that said, when a new administration is being assembled, do I think for a second on how important it is for me that a certain percentage of the cabinet is filled with Ashkenazi Jews? Now like, that you mention it. it. <laughs> <laughs> is that even a thing that crosses my mind? No. And the only people who think like this are the activist class woke leftists that continue to lose because nobody likes their ideas. And so they latch onto the Democrats and push them in the same direction, which is toxic. This whole concept that we have to have every single permutation of human being represented in every government office and every corporation and every coffee house and everywhere in the West is stupid. It actually does damage to the cause of eliminating racism. It forces companies and government uh, to have to consider people as part of a group rather than as an individual. I have plenty of black and Hispanic and homosexual people in my life. They are my friends who happen to be black, Hispanic, or, ho- or, or, or homosexual, not black, Hispanic, or homosexual people who happen to be my friends. The identity group they were born to is secondary to the quality of human that they are. That is what it means to be a liberal. When liberalism shifted, from that concept to the idea that you are the group you identify as is when I lost touch with modern day liberalism. It's antithetical to liberal values. And so if I turned on the TV tomorrow and found out that Joe Biden's cabinet was going to be filled exclusively with transgender black amputees who have an autoimmune disease, I would say to myself, great, what do they believe in? What are their values? How do they look at government? What have they done in their lives? And after I got the answer to those questions, I would reflect on the historic nature of the first ever cabinet in American history that was exclusively made up of transgender black amputees who have an autoimmune disease. In other words, it's an afterthought, not a prerequisite. Biden and all people who call themselves liberals should stop this immediately, if not sooner. Rant done. Slow clap. I'm giving you a slow clap for that yeah, one. That was great. I knew you'd agree with that. Of course. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, I was reading through the cabinet positions and I, I left some of it out because I think it's silly, but it was, you know, first woman to do this, first person yeah. of color to do this. And right. I honestly did think, like, there are some qualified people in there. Right. I see a lot of minorities. I see a yeah. lot of women. That's fine. But are yeah. these the best candidates overall? The I mean, qualifications should yeah. come first. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's the whole thing. Where's Mayor Pete, for example? Right, right. Well, apparently Mayor Pete, there was an article today, I think it was in The Atlantic, about how Mayor Pete's having a hard time because he's just a white guy who's gay and there needs to be all these other people. This is my point. He he is talented. He's qualified. He should be involved in this administration. And why isn't he? Because of the question that was asked of Joe Biden, because of this nonsense that you just pointed out. It's, It's ridiculous. Absolutely is. Okay, so, you know, before we move on to another segment, we have to address the elephant in the room that we haven't even touched on yet, Jay. Yeah. And that is the current COVID surge and the new lockdowns, especially those happening in California. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is not a single state except for Hawaii where things are going in the right direction. It's really, really bad. It's really dangerous. If you watch CNN or MSNBC or any other so-called mainstream network, you'll likely be pummeled with COVID, COVID, COVID and how deadly it is and how every single 
day is like 9-11, basically, in terms of Americans who are dying. Uh, if you watch right-wing media, you probably are absorbing a lot more of the negative economic effects of the lockdown. Right. Um, or the lockdowns, I should say. So in California, they closed all the restaurants again. They issued new stay-at-home orders, uh, and it's a complete mess. Restaurants are only open for takeout now. Uh, people are really emotional about it, as they should be. One person who is rightfully emotional about the lockdowns made a video this past week that went viral. She is the owner of a bar called Pineapple Saloon. If you haven't seen it yet, this is what it sounded like. So this is my place, the Pineapple Hill Grill and Saloon. If you go to my page, you can see all the work I did for outdoor dining, for tables being seven feet apart. And I come in today because I'm organizing a protest and I came in to get stuff for that. And I walk into my parking lot and obviously Mayor Garcetti has approved this. Has approved this being set up for, this being set up for, for a movie company. I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio, which is right over here. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. <laughs> they have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive. My staff cannot survive. Look at this. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face, this is dangerous. Mayor Garcetti and Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. And we need your help. We need somebody to do something about this. Okay, now, uh, that's obviously very emotional. And she's one of literally millions who are going through that. I mean, my wife went through it. She had a thriving, yep, and a very successful fitness studio in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in America. Uh, And basically, in short, when the city ordered her business closed, uh, the business just didn't get enough relief to keep the lights on and pay the bills. That's basically what happened. They had no choice but to close, as so many businesses have had to do and are going to continue to have to do. So I get it on a personal level. But here's my basic rule of thumb, Jay. I'll have a conversation about whether the policy is good or bad, because God knows California especially is known for some bad policy. There's bad policy in every state. Politicians make bad decisions in every state. Absolutely. And Um, we should should question their their policies, even even if they end up, the answer ends up being that it's a good policy. We should still question these things. It's our rights. Yeah, having a conversation about what's good policy and what's bad policy is great. I'll have a conversation about whether certain industries being exempt Mm -hmm. is the result of political kickbacks that give those certain industries certain privileges. I mean, the... The entertainment industry in California holds a lot of water, and they certainly seem to be getting preferential treatment in terms of not having to lock down. You cannot deny that video. The entertainment industry gives a ton of money to Democratic politicians in California. There is corruption galore, absolutely, that goes on there. Remember, not all corruption equals illegality. That's right. But but that kind of stuff happens all the time. Um, I'm willing to have a conversation about that. I, I, I will have a conversation absolutely about the hypocrisy of elected officials who implement policy and then don't follow it themselves. I mean, that's been the subject of a few boneheads of the week, I believe, on the show. Absolutely. We did Gavin Newsom. We did mm-hmm. uh, Nancy Pelosi. 
And that's fine. We, we, we should call those people out for sure, whether you're on the left or the right. Where people start to lose me, however, is when they start fabricating conspiracy theories that there is some sinister ulterior motive behind these measures. And right-wing pundits egg this on all the time. So here is Ben Shapiro, the supposed smart measured conservative, on his show just the other day. Shapiro, go. When politicians enjoy their their authoritarianism this much, uh, it is demonstrative of a serious problem in American life. Do you think this is the last time they're going to try to use this sort of authority? I I was a skeptic of this. At the very beginning, there are a lot of people, friends, family of mine, who are saying, you know, this sort of power grab, we're uncomfortable with it because we're afraid that it could become something permanent. I said, well, listen, there's a global pandemic on. We don't know all the facts. As the facts come out, these regulations will be relaxed. The American people won't stand for it. And then it became clear that a lot of Americans would stand for it. And in in fact, many Americans will call for it. And so the question becomes, what now is the bar going to be for mayors and governors to declare an emergency and simply use all of the authority they've accrued to themselves to do whatever it is that they want? Okay, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. Yes, individual liberty is at stake when you are not relating rational policy in any way to the risks that are currently out there. Now, he says it in a smart way, but what he's saying there has no basis in reality or fact. I mean, he's essentially making the slippery slope argument that when you give people in power more power and greater ability to affect our everyday lives, eventually the bar gets blurry and they think they could do anything they want. So the idea is now that you know, now that they've been able to successfully implement mask mandates and stay-at-home orders, for instance, you know, 5 years from now, Uh, when COVID is long behind us and there's a bad flu season, you know, the powers that be might get together and say, you know, we did this during the COVID pandemic because we could kind of do it again. Let's shut all the businesses down and make people wear masks. You know, the problem I have with this theory generally is that one, it assumes these politicians are tyrannical and authoritarian. And like, I mean, have you ever seen a picture of Mayor Eric Garcetti? (laughs) I mean, mean, first of all, uh, Italian sounding last name, by the way, but actually the first Jewish mayor in LA yep. history. Did you know I that, Jay? That. I didn't yeah. know that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, looks like a stiff breeze would would blow him over. And yeah. I, I'm sort of joking here, but th- the idea that he's sitting at home twisting his mustache and devising a plan to wrest more power from the citizens of LA only to be voted out of office like once his term is up is very silly. And what Shapiro is doing in that clip is exactly the same thing that the right constantly accuses the left of doing, which is fear-mongering. He's unnecessarily spreading fear about the idea that during a global pandemic, if we allow our elected officials to perhaps be a little too overly cautious, they're never going to give the reins up and they're going to keep wanting more and more power. And, you know, I see no evidence for this and I don't think it's going to happen. And I think life is going to go back to normal once a sufficient amount of people in the state have a vaccine in their bloodstream. But, you know, Jay, let's I mean, first of all, what do you think about that? And then I want to talk a little bit about the efficacy of the actual policies for a second. Sure. I mean, I, look, I think what he's doing is having the conversation for the wrong reason. I think, like we said, the conversation is important to have. We get to have it here per our constitution. Uh, is this a good thing or a bad thing that this is being implemented at this time? But having the conversation because you're worried about it ha- happening in five years or 10 years is just the wrong it's the wrong place to enter into the conversation. Right, right, exactly. And and plus, again, I'm a cynical guy when it comes to politics, but I think it's especially cynical to believe that democratically elected United States politicians mm-hmm. 
have this underlying desire to have authoritative authoritarian control. Well, you hit on you hit on this. I think it was a couple episodes ago that yeah. you know politics in our country have gotten very bitter and cynical, and now right. it, it's moved from you know what what are this what is this person doing over to you know who is this person? Is he evil? Right. And, and, right, and you have exactly. both sides calling each other evil and saying they have the worst intentions for yeah. the citizens. And also, I mean, look, you know, po- getting into politics isn't, it, it's not a lucrative career. No. Uh, I yeah. mean, it can be, but yeah. it, it's not, you don't get into this because you want to make a lot of money and, and, and wield a bunch of power. You may, you get into this because it, it is difficult and you want to help the citizens of your state, country, you know, yeah. city, although, whatever it is. Although it should be, it should be said that while they don't make a lot of money while they're in office, once yeah. they get out, they write books, they they Absolutely. work on K Street, they consult, and they make plenty of money then. So, so they are setting themselves up for sure. Yeah. But it's not easy to get into it, and it's a very difficult job when you have it. Is my right. point? And and right. so when you get into it, you know, ideally you would th- you would like to know that these people get into it for the right reasons, which is to help the citizenry. You can't have a mass of politicians without having the majority of them at least get into it for the right reason. Right, right. Yeah, and I think they all have aspirations beyond where they are. I mean, mm-hmm. Eric Garcetti is the mayor of of one of the largest cities in, in the world. And, you know, I think he wants to move up the ladder for yeah. sure, just like Gavin Newsom did. Now he's governor. And Gavin Newsom absolutely wants mm-hmm. to be president. You could tell by the way he speaks. I think uh, you could probably put uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York in that same category. Yes. And, yeah, there are political motivations. The way they, they sort of uh, cudgel the media have political implications for them down the road mm-hmm. for sure they, yeah. they're thinking down the road their ba politics is politics that's why they call it politics right yeah. but it, it still doesn't mean that they have evil intentions Correct. or that they're trying to be hitler you know it's yeah, yeah. and when i watch a video of eric garcetti because he gives these little speeches on on fox every night uh, not not fox news but like local, local fox, fox. Yeah. yeah and i just think to myself yeah this guy's really hitler i gotta tell you <laughs> Little Jew. I mean, yeah, he's just like this. He looks like the kids I went. Every kid I went to camp with named yeah. Aaron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what he looks like. So anyway, l- let's talk about the efficacy though of of these policies. We'll okay. talk about good policy and bad policy because I, I mean, we'll do this really quickly. I mean, I think there's some serious inconsistency. We'll only talk about LA because that's where we are. Yeah, but the fact that these restaurants are closing again—that's the most glaring thing yeah. to me—is that they're they're and. You know, a judge now has not reversed the order, but has put out a ruling where it stated there's no science that backs these claims yeah. that COVID is transmitted in outdoor dining. There's no science behind that measure of closing down the restaurants. And so it was it was it seemed overly draconian to yeah. to do that specifically. Maybe, um, you know, remember that a few weeks ago or a few months ago at this point, we did that. Ep- we did a, a new segment called I Don't Know. Yeah. Um, I would put this in that segment because I I am not you know I'm proud enough to admit I'm not an infectious disease doctor expert. I don't know if you can't get it outside. I've read you could find studies on anything. You could find studies on masks being like the ultimate way to prevent this thing. You could find studies on how masks don't work at all. Yeah, you know, and so it's no, very course. confusing. My point. And, my my yeah. only point is this: is that yeah. we were promised that these mayors and governors were going to follow the science they promised us that they really did and Mm -hmm. they have not done that in this regard there is not been science presented to show that and and it's been asked for by the restaurant owners it's been asked for by the judge they have not been able to provide it and so that's not following the science it's literally shutting something down with a lack of science and that that's no different than what you know they've been 
uh, accusing other people of doing. I agree with that. The only other thing I would say to push back a little bit is that they also promised that if hospitalizations, uh, if, 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 um, what's it called? Yeah, ICU, ICU beds. Yeah, yeah that's if, why they're doing fell, all of this. Fell be, uh, below 15%. Yeah. That they would have to do drastic measures. So they did draw a line in the sand there. Absolutely. And once the line was crossed, they were like, we have to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, why they're keeping over, enter, uh, keeping open entertainment sector is is complete ludicrous and 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 i think it's really pissing a lot of people off even people who don't live in the state and don't have an attachment to the state like even people who tend to always go along with what the elected officials are saying are being like well i don't really get this like that doesn't make any sense like my mother doesn't think it makes sense there are some inconsistencies with with the measures themselves right right so anyway the bottom line is that all of this sucks i know it's hard, and I know we're all tired of it, but all of those feelings that we're having don't justify claiming that there's a sinister agenda attached right. to this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's sort of the, the moral of the story for me. Here. Agreed. So before we move on, I want to quickly mention the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19 that is being dispensed around the world as we speak. Now, England is getting it before we are, and I'll get to that in a minute. But firstly, we had to mention that the second official person in the UK to get the vaccine was named William Shakespeare. And this opens up all sorts of opportunities (laughs) for witty puns. You know, to be or not to be vaccinated. That is the question. The the taming of the flu. (laughs) Tickle me, do I not laugh? Prick me, do I not bleed? Vaccinate me, do I not have a significantly increased chance of surviving a potentially lethal illness? Oh, NIH, NIH, wherefore art thou nih oh my gosh all right out <laughs> we can we can go on forever yeah we could do that. out riz get the to a vaccinary <laughs> so i just thought that was that was like that was the biggest news of the day yesterday that his name happened to be william shakespeare That's fantastic yeah it yeah. really is yeah. so on a serious note and i'll make this quick i think it says a lot about our system of bureaucracy and yep. government red tape that a vaccine that was invented in the United States by a U.S. corporation is being held up by our own government agency mm-hmm. while it is currently being dispensed and utilized in other countries around the world. So for all of you big government people out there, think about that for a minute. Jay, what do you think? I agree with you. I mean, now the U.K. and Canada both have approved this American-made vaccine before America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we touted the president's use of the private sector and his opera- Operation Warp Speed on this podcast. And not shockingly, it now turns out he just wanted the credit. It's turned into Operation Slow Speed. Yeah. <laughs> so what good is finding a vaccine quickly if you can't get it distributed quickly? Let's go, people. I don't know what you're waiting for, but this, this needs to happen faster. Push the button. But apparently they're meeting tomorrow. They're going to issue the the and by tomorrow be the day you guys are listening to this podcast thursday yeah. they're going to issue the emergency order and get this thing rolling well, so i want to get, get embarrassed by canada yeah it's true yeah yeah I, I want to get this vaccine just pumped into my vein like i i won't even eat that day i'll just be like just this is my this is my breakfast lunch and dinner of the day. You. that sounds just great the vaccine right <laughs> so uh while we're on the topic of covid jay we have a new segment for you guys i today. love a new segment yes both jay and i come down on the media a lot on this show so we were like you know why the hell don't we have a segment for all the times the media are sucking at their jobs and a perfect example of how much they suck at their jobs is in fact in relation to how they've generally reported on COVID-19. So here you go, a brand new segment for a brand new season. This segment is called Do Better. I, 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 I do better. 
So now that we uh, gave you a sort of moderate view of how we should look at COVID-related policy, I'm going to tell you my personal feelings on the matter. Do you mind, Jay? Please go ahead. Okay. And yes, it is possible for me to have personal feelings that differ from the way in which I feel about public policy. The reason for this is that not everyone is as responsible as I am or worries as much as I do. Jay knows I'm a worry word, right? You and me both. Yeah. So, so. I do think that when constructing public policy, we have to think about society writ large and not necessarily the individual. Uh, With that said, though, this is America and we value our freedom here. And I do trust my fellow citizens to inform themselves and act in a responsible manner. In other words, I do believe that an intelligent citizenry that is armed with the facts should supersede government policy. And perhaps if we had an honest diligent and hardworking media, mm-hmm. we wouldn't need these draconian COVID measures because citizens would be less confused and would be able to assess their own risk and make the best decisions for their health and the health of their families. So basically what I'm saying is that, yes, there are a lot of stupid people in America, but our media is not making anyone smarter. Now, the way that COVID statistics are reported in the press are idiotic at best and dangerous at worst. CNN keeps a ticker on the top right of their screen all day of the total deaths in the country, and they run chirons and big, bold headlines that highlight how devastating the numbers are, and they are devastating, and every death is one too many. I'm not downplaying the severity of this virus. However, valuable context into the total numbers of deaths is missing, and this deprives the citizens of this country the information they would need to make rational decisions. And once the people do a little research of their own and figure out that the media isn't telling them the entire story, that's when people become ripe to create conspiracy theories about the pandemic in general. They rip off their masks and they say, to hell with it. Nobody is being honest with me. I'll go about my regular life. So what do I mean exactly? Let's talk about age ranges and COVID, okay? As of today, according to the CDC data, readily available on the CDC website, you could get this yourself, 87 kids under the age of 15 have died of COVID-19 throughout this entire pandemic in the United States. Of those 87, 82 of them, 82 had pre-existing conditions, meaning heart problems, severe asthma, diabetes, et cetera, okay? By contrast, In 2017, we were hit with a really bad seasonal flu. I remember I have two little kids. We were all very scared because the flu was very bad that year. 182 kids under 15 died of the flu that season. Half of them didn't have any pre-existing conditions. And 40% of them had a, uh, didn't have, or sorry, 40% of them had a flu vaccine. So what that means is that seasonal flu is considerably more deadly to kids than COVID-19 is, considerably. Now, further, we have pretty good evidence at this point that children are not the main vector of transmission for COVID. So could kids have been in school? Probably. As it turns out, actually, seasonal flu kills more people under the age of 55 than COVID does most years. Now, what makes COVID so scary, not to, uh, you know, again, I'm not downplaying this. What makes COVID so scary is the very intense increase in death rate among the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions, to which there are a lot of in America. There's a lot of old people and there's a lot of people who are sick. But 
You notice how the media never takes the time to break any of this down for us? Like, if we all had access to this information and didn't just take the numbers that the press gives us at face value, maybe we'd have more sensible decisions or maybe we'd make more sensible decisions in regard to this pandemic. So what would qualify as a sensible decision? Well, if you're like me and you're relatively young and healthy, and you have a couple of young and healthy kids, you probably need to be a little less careful than your 70-year-old parents do. So perhaps we might have sent our kids to school, gone back to work, gone out to restaurants, and canceled Thanksgiving in an effort to stay away from older people. What I'm saying is that arming the people with detailed information would have allowed us to implement specific mitigation tactics for specific demographics. This would have decreased the generalized COVID fatigue syndrome that we're having right now among the population and made people more willing to go along with skipping the family gathering at Thanksgiving and Christmas because they wouldn't have felt like their entire life was sucked out of them for the entire year. Mm -hmm. So the media's tactic of reporting the alarmingly high number of hospitalizations and deaths without the underlying context is actually dangerous because the lack of information eventually leads people to give up altogether. It's sort of like the dieting mentality. You know, diets that drastically and suddenly limit the kinds of food one can eat will almost always fail after a few weeks. Diets, on the other hand, that ask one to make small, moderate, and sensible changes are often easier to stick with for long periods of time. If the media had done better, I do believe we would be facing a much different scenario than we are at the moment. Jay, anything to add? No, I I cannot agree with you more. I think that this is an area like most, I mean, you know, we talk about with politics all the time, where the media has really failed us. I think that journalists are not out for any kind of integrity these days. They're out for ratings. And what gives the most ratings? Well, these large, giant, sweeping numbers Right. The the continued uh, fear mongering and, mm-hmm. you know, the talking about all of Trump's policies and what's going wrong and all of that stuff on a, on a yeah. massive scale, rather than drill down into some of the specifics that you may lose a viewer or two, but the people that you do hit, they'll they'll be better off for having this information. I mean, gone are the days of Walter Cronkite. Right. Of course. And, you know, I think I think that the media treats the public with a certain level of disrespect yeah. by not arming us with all of the details um, by just sort of giving us this broad view of things and then, you know, failing to give us the, the rest of the information. They're not doing anyone a service and they're certainly not doing the community a service in terms uh, of health. Because again, I think so much of the media's malfeasance here has led to an increase in this COVID fatigue Absolutely. that we're seeing. Yeah. People have just said, I'm going to go about my life at this point. It's been nine months. I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I can't trust the media because they don't tell me the truth. And I look at the CDC site and I'm seeing all the numbers here and they're just telling me the the the, the main number without any kind context. And context is a really important thing, even during a pandemic. Context is always important. Absolutely. So what we're really trying to say is do Do better. If you won't, media, we will. There you go. (laughs) Mic drop. And that is the end of that segment. So thank you guys for joining us. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's time to bring in some culture. And uh, what we're about to talk about has been the a uh, topic of discussion on the culture front for a while now. This is Culture Corner. The big question about new nerd cereal is... Oh, which side? Orange flavor. Get hold of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Today, 
Kool-Aid coolers with 20% juice. You can the Transformers will return after these messages. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video. So uh, maybe by now some of you have seen the movie Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, perhaps you've read the highly rated uh, best-selling book of the same name, uh, a memoir written by uh, J.D. Vance. Uh, I have both read the book and seen the movie and have since been reading a lot of reviews and analysis on both. Uh, I will say right off the bat that the movie removed most of the political elements that the the book had in it. I think Ron Howard, who produced the film, didn't want to go down the road of politics, but J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, does get into politics in his memoir, which we'll get to in a minute. So the book is basically a memoir of J.D. Vance's life growing up in uh, low-income, poverty-ridden circumstances in Appalachia. Uh, he talks a lot about how this part of the country has a history of low-paying uh, manual labor jobs that most of the community was engaged in and how a lot of those jobs have disappeared, which has led to an influx of drug addiction and violence and everything else that comes with uh, that comes along with you know, areas of the country that become depressed for one reason or, or another. Uh, but the author, J.D. Vance, has a unique perspective, and I think this is why the book was so profound, uh, because he escaped that lifestyle and ended up uh, going to law school at Yale and becoming a professional. So his perspective on somebody who sort of made it out and is looking back in is certainly intriguing. Uh, so in the book, uh, Vance raises the question as to the responsibility of his family and people in those kind of communities for their own misfortune. In other words, do you kind of shake your finger at people who have been left behind in these communities that have seen their jobs and opportunities disappear and tell them to sort of pick themselves up by the bootstraps or, and, you know, and, and go do something else? Or do you look at government and the role that administrations have played over the past 50 years that have led to many communities in middle America falling into despair? Uh, the book happened to come out right after Trump won in 2016. And it was used as sort of a guidebook or a, the, the Holy Grail, actually, for the elites in the country to kind of understand why these forgotten men and women in forgotten towns all over those, quote, flyover states had connected so strongly to Donald Trump. And the reason is because, quite simply, Trump promised he was going to bring these people's jobs back. And, you know, that didn't really happen. I mean, there was there was actually some improvement, but not anything really measurable. And it's but, you know, the appeal with Trump from those communities perspective is it's really just as simple as that. They felt that the government had forgotten about them. And critics love this memoir by J.D. Vance because critics themselves are elitist who were desperately searching for answers as to why these people could fall for Trump so hard. And I think Vance's story made them finally kind of get it, right? So the movie, however, has been absolutely panned by critics. But surprisingly, or not surprisingly, depending on how you feel about critics, uh, viewers have actually really liked the movie. Yeah. I didn't love the movie, but it was mainly because I thought the book was a thousand times better. Jay, tell me what you thought about the movie. Um, I completely agree with you. I, I didn't love the movie. I thought it was an interesting portrait and was a character study on, you yeah. know, who America is and, and who the Trump voter is. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, it was interesting in that way, but no more. 
you know, the story wasn't all that intriguing. It was just really more of an interesting picture of who these characters in America are. And I think that was the appeal back in, in, in 2016 when the book came out. That was the appeal of making the movie in the first place. I read a couple articles, you know, where they talked about this was Ron Howard's, uh, you know, attempt at showing people who those people are that voted for Trump. And right. uh, I think critics forgot about that. And yeah, they then misunderstood the purpose of the movie. Well, I have, I have a slightly different theory on mm -hmm. the critic. Here, here's my take on why critics have shifted their opinion on how they feel both about the book and the movie, because they don't like the book anymore, apparently. Yeah. Um, I think when this book came out at the beginning of Trump's presidency, the sort of intelligentsia class wasn't as disenchanted with Trump as they became four years later. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there, there actually was a real sincere attempt in 2016 on behalf of the sort of sophisticates in our yeah. society to really understand what makes the people of middle America, the steel country, the coal miners, you know, what makes them tick. And there was sort of a, an empathetic attempt to understand these people a little better. I remember even watching Van Jones on CNN he did a series shortly after Trump won in 16 about the sort of forgotten American. And he went to these small towns all over the country and attempted to empathize and listen to their stories. Mm -hmm. You know, four years later, that empathy is gone amongst sure. the intelligentsia. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I think they look at Trump's presidency with such horror, as both you and I do, mm -hmm. that they sort of went back to sneering at these people yeah. and pointing the finger and saying, you know, it's your fault that this happened because you're stupid and you're small-minded. I mean, that's how they got here in the first place. It's not really right, right, right. the right thing to do. Right. And I think by the time this movie came out, they mm -hmm. had such a distaste yeah, that for right. that part of the country that the messaging went over their heads. Now, mm -hmm. I want to talk about a personal thing for a second here. Uh, Jay and I both have a friend. Um, I won't mention his name, but he's a friend of the pod who recently moved from L.A. back back east for a job opportunity. We're very proud of him for the opportunity he got. It's, yeah. uh, it's a big thing for him. Uh, as he was driving, he was taking uh, photos of his journey. Yeah. And he, so he drove from L.A. all the way back east and, uh, you know, sending it to us and texting it to us. And, you know, he was he was sending us photos of like farmlands and all the Trump signs everywhere. And so he was also pontificating on sort of revelations he was having yeah. about, you know, as he was making this journey. And at one point he texted us something and I thought, I have to bring this up on the pod. So I'm going to read what he texted us. He texted us a picture of like Trump signs and farmland in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere. And he said, you know, honestly, I get it more driving through the country now. You know, the whole sheltered slash closed mind uh, mostly white living on huge farms slash towns that generally never leave. Like, why would they care about progressive ideas that span beyond their tiny little closed minds? They wouldn't, and I get that. It's all they know. And it makes sense on a visceral level that they would be scared of change. They've been doing the same forever with no personal slash worldly growth. And so... Our friend wasn't being vindictive or snobby by saying that. He's actually one of the most empathetic people I think I've ever met in my life, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and honestly, I agree with him. There 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 is a stark divide between those living in small rural towns across America and those living in the big cities. But at the same time, I think that attitude of like F you and your lack of personal worldly growth, like yeah. you're insignificant, is the reason 
the very reason we got Trump. I completely like, it, agree. It is, it is the bottom of the onion. It's yeah. the first layer, mm-hmm. right? You know, even, even though those people probably knew that Trump was full of it, like the people in middle America that we're talking about, he was telling them that he would be a fighter for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what did it. I mean, what do you think about that, Jay? I agree. I think that that's yeah. exactly why we are where we are. And I think the repeat of that history is going to be very bad news for yeah. the left. They, they, they need to take a different tack. I mean, it, yeah, it just didn't work. There is definitely a movement among people like our friend we were just talking about. And I think uh, I think we're in the same you and I are both in the same category. Mm-hmm. It, it, there is a such a divide in our sensibilities. Sure. And I think that has that has had such a big effect on 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 splitting this country apart and really just exposing just how divided we are. Yeah, you know? I agree. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I when I toured in bands, taking that trip cross country really did open my eyes as well. And I didn't have the uh, current political climate to sort of push me into a corner the way that right. I think it has with with our friend that that drove it. Um, but you know, you do, you, you, you drive out on some of these sort of hills and you look down and you see the town church and the town Walmart and the town school. And you understand that this is this person's ecosphere. Like this is, they don't, yeah. and they don't leave it to me. It, it created a little bit more empathy in, in that, you know, this is their experience and all they know. And these are the things that they care about. And that's reflected politically. And you also have something in common with them because the, Church is important to you. Absolutely. It wasn't, you know, and, it wasn't then, but it is now. Right, yeah, absolutely. It, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying you could probably, that probably made you at least be able to relate to the worldview a little bit more. For sure, right? for, for sure. And I think, but it's, it's really more of like understanding what's important to these people and why. Right. And not holding right. it against him, just you understanding know, it. I mean, there's no world in where uh, a, an increase of empathy is bad. Exactly. It's only the yeah, opposite. It's true. It's true. And and I think, you know, some of this did start with Obama. There was that famous speech Obama gave before he was president where he was describing people in middle America. And he, he had a famous quote where he said, you know, clinging to their God and their guns. Yeah, I remember that. And that was, you know, of course, it was taken a little bit out of context, what he was saying. Mm-hmm. But that very much resonated with people like yeah, yeah i do uh, i don't care if you don't like my values right. that's that's what my values are and i think uh the left especially sort of the the intelligentsia left um has has sort of pushed back in the same way like i don't care if you, you want to go live on a farm and go to church every day that's your thing right. just leave me the hell alone yeah. you know um so it's uh it's a complicated thing and i think J.D. Vance, in his book and in this movie, he more so in the book, he really does outline all of these things. Mm-hmm. He talks about a little bit about something I, I, I had never thought about, which is the importance of the industrial age in America in those parts of Appalachia. You know, you're talking about Ohio, the steel towns, yeah. the, the coal mining plants. Uh, a lot of those places had a, a, an enormous sense of pride mm-hmm. throughout most of American history yes. because they were making things. And and we're going to get to this in our topic of the day mm-hmm. in a couple minutes here. But was the backbone the tra- of this country. Right. The transition there, there's something prideful mm-hmm. about making something. Like when he JD Vance talks about in his book that he would drive around with his grandfather and his grandfather would say, "See that car? I worked at the factory that made right. that car." You yeah, know, they sure. were very proud of it, mm-hmm. proud of America. There has been be, because a lot of those jobs have been uh, displaced, mm-hmm. there uh, that 
industrial segment has moved on to more of a retail segment. So yeah. instead of instead of making things, they're selling things. Yeah. And what JD Vance was saying is that when you're selling something, there's just not as much pride in it for the community as making. Absolutely it. agree. So so there there have been elements that, that, that I just thought that was sort of a profound thing that I hadn't thought of. And there are elements to that that uh, everyone should look into. So again, Hillbilly Elegy, check out both the memoir and the movie. And uh, that is it. Transitioning out of this Culture Corner segment and onto the topic of the day, what J.D. Vance talks a lot about in his Hillbilly Elegy memoir is a topic that is creating a sort of ideological war inside the Republican Party. And there are two sides. There are the classic free market globalist Republicans who are very much against government involvement in industry or in the market in general. Uh, this has also become a sort of libertarian point of, point of view. And on the other side, you have the so-called compassionate conservatives. That's what they're calling themselves, uh, like Tucker Carlson and a lot more uh, Trumpy, uh, Trumpier populists like Laura Ingram, uh, who are closer in ideology from an economic standpoint to Bernie Sanders than they are to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So all the way back in episode 17 of the show, we named the episode the Red and Blue Switcheroo. Still one of my favorite a good names for an episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And we talked about the switch that has taken place between the Democrats and the Republicans. We've talked about it ever since, you know, at least at the base level in many ideological areas. Today, we're going to talk about some of the overlapping ideological views of the sort of Trumpian populist right and the Bernie Sanders slash AOC left. So without further ado, this is the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. So uh, the topic of the day is globalism. Okay. But first, a bit of an intro. Uh, I put on Fox every now and again at night and, uh, you know, usually just to get myself riled up before bed, Jay. Raise the blood pressure. Raise the blood pressure before bed. That's my motto. And I, I usually cringe throughout all of their primetime programming. Uh, Laura Ingram's opening monologue, uh, which she calls tonight's angles, she calls it her angle, uh, are usually filled with musings that I wholeheartedly disagree with. However, a couple of weeks ago, she did a monologue that she titled The Tempting of AOC. AOC, of course, for those living under a rock, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, it's a hard name to say. It's it a is. real mouthful. So Which I'm is why we say AOC. AOC. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It, the monologue she gave called tempting, the, the Tempting of AOC, it was engaging and kind of startling in a way because it really highlighted just how different today's conservative slash Republican Party is compared to 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. The entire piece Ingram did was nine minutes long. Uh, I really suggest you guys go watch it. It's on YouTube. You could it, it, just type in the tempting of AOC, Laura Ingram, it'll come up. Uh, I cut it up a little and found sort of the best and most relevant two minutes of it of what we're going to talk about today. It's the crux of what we'll be discussing on this topic of the day. Here is what that sounded like. The tempting of AOC. That's the focus of tonight's angle. Now, shortly after she stunned House Democrats by beating longtime incumbent Queens Congressman Joe Crowley two years ago, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was being written off by many Republicans as just a flash in the pan, just a far-left progressive who caught an old establishment Democrat off guard. And while her candidate Bernie Sanders didn't win the 2020 nomination, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has had enormous influence on her party. She's presented herself as a strong voice for working-class Americans and a strong critic of multinational corporations. There is nothing wrong with being a working person in the United States of America, and there is everything dignified about it. The Democratic Party is supposed to be the champion of the working class. I agree. But with Joe Biden waiting in the wings, poised to announce major changes to U.S. trade and foreign policy, AOC faces some difficult choices. How can she, who's always claimed to be a crusader for the working class, you just heard it, support the policies favored by big corporate interests, Wall Street? Well, given what Biden's team is already telling us, that's exactly where we're going. Backward to the days where the rich get their way and the working class get shafted. But all the gains that our workers made are about to be wiped out if Biden's new globalist cabal has its way. They're already sharpening their knives to cut wages and ship jobs offshore. This raises the question. Will AOC and the squad stand mute while American workers are crushed under this agenda? Or will they work with American populists to resist anti-worker policies? Okay, so interesting stuff. Very fascinating. Um, now, Yes, very fascinating. Now, in Obama's closing speech as president, he gave one closing speech. He made the case that it wasn't immigration from Latin America that was having such a great effect on the changing economy in middle America. It was actually both globalization and automation that were having such a strong impact. And I think it's clear at this point that a large portion of both the left and the right have serious problems with the globalized economy and with free markets in general. Uh, a lot of you may may have heard the term globalization, but might not really understand its context or what it means. It's usually said in a negative sense, you know, the globalists, um, which has become a very big thing on the right to point out when someone is a globalist. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I have my buddy Jay here. Uh, he is going to buzz you up on an intro to globalization. Jay, buzz off, dude. Hello, and welcome to Buzzed History. This week, we're going to tackle a teensy-weensy topic known as globalization. Now, other than sounding like a James Bond plot point, globalization is the process of interaction and integration among people, companies, and governments worldwide, which still kind of sounds like a James Bond plot point. It is primarily an economic process of interaction and integration that is associated with social and cultural aspects. But conflicts and diplomacy are also large parts of globalization since it has so much to do with world economies and industry. Globalization has become more prominent since the 18th century due to advancements in transportation, communication, technology, currency, and this has spurned a growth in international trade and the exchange of ideas and culture. The historical origins of globalization are hotly contested. Some experts pinpoint the origins of globalization in the modern era, while others regard it as a phenomenon with a long history. There's also an argument worth noting that the further one stretches back for the origin of globalization, the more one renders the idea useless for political analysis. For those that do wish to entertain the idea that globalization stretches back, should look to three periods, according to political commentator and author Thomas L. Friedman. Friedman divides the history of globalization into three periods. Globalization 1.0 from 1491 to 1800, which we can also call archaic globalization. Globalization 2.0 from 1800 to 2000, which we can call proto-globalization. And yep, you guessed it, globalization 3.0 from 2000 to present day, which is, which is, of course, modern globalization. 
He also states that 1.0 involved the globalization of countries, 2.0 involved the globalization of companies, and now 3.0 involves the globalization of individuals. Archaic globalization existed during the Hellenistic Age, when commercialized urban centers were focused around the axis of Greek culture over a range that stretched all the way from India to Spain, centering around cities like Alexandria, Athens, and Antioch. Trade was rampant during this time period, and it is the first time the idea of a cosmopolitan culture emerged. The word cosmopolitan comes from the Greek word cosmopolis, meaning world city. There are also trade links to consider between the Roman Empire, the Parthian Empire, and the Han Dynasty, which inspired the development of the Silk Road. With the rise of maritime European empires in the 16th and 17th centuries came the beginnings of proto-globalization. A prime example of this was the phenomenon of globalization as a private business, with the establishment of the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company. This was a period in which Eurasia and Africa engaged in cultural and material exchanges with the New World, beginning in the late 15th century when the kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal, and Castile sent the first exploratory voyages around the Cape of Good Hope and to the Americas. This set off the European colonization of the Americas, initiating the Columbian Exchange, which was one of the most significant global events concerning globalization in history. Trade began encompassing plants, animals, food, culture, and unfortunately, also slaves and communicable diseases. Several factors promoted globalization in this period. The conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars brought in an era of relative peace in Europe, innovations in transportation technology, new industrial military tech reduced trade costs, and new industrial military technologies increased the power of Europe and the United States, allowing these territories to open markets across the world. Soon enough, modern globalization began to take hold, and industrialization allowed cheap production of household items, using economies of scale, and the demand for commodities skyrocketed. The world saw Great Britain rise to power due to superior manufacturing technology and improved global communications with steamships and railroads. A citizen of London could order products from the world by phone, sipping his tea from across the globe. As time wore on, global trade began as growth in merchant production, trade in services, and trade by multinational firms took hold. Globalization in this period was shaped by 19th century imperialism, like in Africa and Asia, and things like the invention of shipping containers in 1956 helped advance the globalization of commerce. After World War II, work by politicians led to the agreements of the Bretton Woods Conference, which took place in July of 1944 in New Hampshire and established the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the International Monetary Fund, which facilitated growth by lowering international trade barriers. This eventually led to the World Trade Organization, or WTO, which provided a framework for negotiating and formalizing trade agreements and a dispute resolution process, pushing the output of worldwide exports exponentially. However, when the usage of global agreements to advance trade began to appear cumbersome, most countries shifted to bilateral or smaller multilateral agreements. Since the 1980s, modern globalization has spread rapidly through the expansion of capitalism ideologies. The implementation of these policies has allowed for the privatization of public industries, deregulation of laws that interfered with the market, and cutbacks to governmental social services. These policies were introduced to many developing countries in the form of structural adjustment programs that were implemented by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, who have both become global financial market regulators. The closer we near to modern times, the more globalization we see. Attributing to this is the migration and movement of people around the globe. The migration of the labor force, workers move to areas with higher wages as the developing world oriented towards the international market economy. The collapse of the Soviet Union left the United States in the position of the sole world policeman and an unfettered advocate of free market. As such, 
the proliferation of popular culture and consumer values and the growing prominence of international institutions like the UN all took center stage. The EU is another example of globalization, allowing for easy workforce immigrating and emigrating and trade of goods, services, and capital within the internal market and externally maintaining common policies on trade, agriculture, fisheries, and regional development. The EU also saw the establishment of a common currency, the euro. Of course, one if not the most dramatic developments worldwide was the introduction of the internet, a place connecting people, culture, and commerce from just about every corner of the planet. Now, there are two schools of thought when it comes to globalization. On one hand, there are the protectionists, a contingent that dislikes globalization, clinging to the notion that globalization claims jobs that would otherwise be retained internally, thus losing jobs and money elsewhere overseas. This has caused global exports to stall or even reverse slightly as we see the United States backing away from its role as policeman and trade champion of the world. The other side believes that globalization, while yes, disrupting some livelihoods, also opens new and better opportunities, that open markets are required to remain competitive globally, and helps with more diplomatic conflict resolutions, while protectionism helps only a select few, but creates higher costs for all. We have seen that technological progress is something that we cannot run away from. So was globalization the same? I have a feeling that the answer to that question will be unmasked within the next few years. That has been another wordy Buzz History. Buzz History. Ajay, really, really good. Good stuff. Ooh. Informative. One of my... No, I'm yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Maybe next week. So, so, you know, obviously this is a very complex subject with a lot of nuance, yeah. but one of the things we try to do on this show is, is sort of bring these, these topics of the day back to basics mm-hmm. and have a discussion about it after you do your buzz history. Globalization was at one point supported by the, the sort of mainstream... Uh, Republicans. Sure. I mean, right? in the Reagan era, after, like I said, after yeah. the Soviet Union fell, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, we were, we were it. United States was right. the place to go for trade, was the place to go to, uh, you know, to try and forge those capitalistic values upon the rest right. of the world. Of course. And like you said, it, it, in your bus history, there has been negative repercussions and there have been positive. Correct. Um, a lot of positive and a lot of the positive uh, elements of of globalization, which I'll get to in a minute, f- fall on the consumer. It yeah. has been incredible for the consumer. But why do you think, as a Republican, why do you think, or say as a conservative, why do you think that um, in the wake of Trump and his sort of populist uh, America first movement, the term globalist has become such a negative term. It's almost like a it's almost like a, a racial slur. For like sure. You hear far right people saying it all the time. Oh, he's a globalist. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been jokingly we we name ourselves before we come on to this uh to to record, and I named myself Globalist Cuck Riz. <laughs> <laughs> Because I knew we were doing an episode on globalism, but why do you think that is? I mean, let it, me know. It's it's everything we talked about today, uh, in in and everything we talked about as far as this election goes. The Republican base is new. The Republican yeah. base are people in the center of the country who these jobs belong or belonged to or belonged yeah. to their families. And so right. when you talk about globalism, you are now ripping a job from the hands of a family with kids and colleges and you know uh, these these things that they need uh, a life they have to provide for and so right. that in my opinion is why it gets so personal because you're talking about yeah. livelihoods and you're talking about people's jobs and it's very specific to the republican base right now the mm-hmm. people who the trumpists are 
and yeah. who the Trump team is pandering to. So you, you can't be for globalism and have these people on your side because they're going to view you as wanting to take their jobs away and giving them to someone in, in China. Right. And, and, you know, it's funny when you mentioned the, the EU, mm-hmm. I started thinking like the whole concept of globalization is also rife for um, conspiracy theories, which we've say. been talking mm-hmm. about because it's it, and we, we mentioned this term on this episode earlier, the idea of a one world government. Yeah. You know, I think that goes hand in hand with this whole anti-globalist movement, mm-hmm. the idea that countries have a right to sovereignty. Yeah. And as we become a more globalized network and we're getting products and, uh, you know, services from all different countries all over the and world. Currencies. Look at something like Bitcoin. Right. I mean, that is exactly, you know. exactly. You know, the, 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 what makes America, America, what makes Italy, Italy, uh, is, is being, um, eroded. Yeah. And you see this, there are huge populist movements all over the world, especially in Europe. Yeah. Some of them are quite dangerous well, in but Europe. But look at what happened with, uh, yeah. with England, with the UK. Yeah, Britain, yeah, they Britain. want mm-hmm. sovereignty. Yeah. They want some of their own um, uh, identity yeah. back. And I think maybe that's one of the negative repercussions of globalism is that it has um, blurred the lines of identity mm-hmm. for countries all over the world. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I want to bring up here, I want to bring it back to J.D. Vance. He wrote an article for National Review a couple years ago at this point. Uh, it's called The Health of Nations. Mm-hmm. I really suggest all of you guys read it. Health of Nations, National Review. J.D. Vance is a Republican. He's a moderate Republican. He's also uh, on the side of Tucker Carlson. We talked, as I was introing this segment, we talked about how there's sort of a warfare right now in the Republican Party between the people who are on the side of globalism. And the Tucker Carlson is a Trumper. He is a far-right conservative who is very, very much in favor of government intervention mm-hmm. to help the economy, right? Which is classically not, not very conservative, yeah. right? So uh, in this piece, uh, J.D. Vance says, uh, the the heading of the piece says, uh, conservatives should heed Tucker Carlson's advice. We should assume that what is good for, mar- uh, I'm sorry, we shouldn't assume that what is good for markets is good for all of us. He says, Tucker Carlson's monologue heard around the world is interesting on its own terms. Now, Tucker Carlson gave this very uh, famous monologue. I think it was, uh, you know, it was a couple years ago at this point where he talked about government intervention and he espoused a lot of economic ideas that were much closer to Bernie Sanders, as I said, than traditional Republicans. So J.D. Vance continues. He says in it, in the monologue, he argues against a conservatism that consistently prizes commercial interests above those of everyone else. I encourage you, he goes on to say he encourages everyone to watch and read it uh, or uh, listen to it in full. He says, yeah, the response on the right is as interesting as Carlson's monologue itself for reveals a discomfort among some conservatives for balancing the tensions that exist in our coalition and in our ideology. He says, there is, by many on the right, an effort to sing the praises of market capitalism without acknowledging the tensions between our pro-market principles and everything else. Ben Shapiro responded to J.D. Vance's article here, and they're friends, and, you know, so it's not like they have a contentious relationship mm-hmm. or anything. And he wrote, so this is, this is Shapiro, he wrote, supply and demand economics has powered most of the world's human beings out of extreme poverty and led to the richest society in human history. It has allowed us to live longer, in bigger houses, in more comfort. 
It has meant fewer dead children and more living parents. If we've blown that advantage, that's our own fault. Traditional conservatives recognize that the role of economics is to provide prosperity, to raise the GDP. The role of a social fabric and a value system is to provide meaning. Yeah. Now, I have a feeling, Jay, that you agree more with that. Yeah, I mean, sense. I was going to say that uh, it's a good thing that, you know, you said that first because it was just going to be me right. repeating it. Uh, yeah, essentially. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think that overall globalism has contributed to the fabric of life in a very positive way. It can right. keeps costs down. Um, it allows us to live more comfortably. It pushes technologies and innovation forward and allows companies to thrive and allows the free market to thrive. If we start messing with that, I think that you're, you're really talking about economics here. And when you get into economics, it's very, economic theory is incredibly complicated stuff. But there is, there, there is a moment in economic theory when things are tumultuous, tumultuous and things do affect negatively a group of people or an industry and that is part of this, the, the system working. It's part of the economic right. system working. And it's going to be uncomfortable for a swath of people, but you have yeah. to look at the greater good, and it serves the greater good. Of course. And, you know, it's funny, J.D. Vance responded to, uh, to Shapiro's response and wrote, uh, our economy has not produced fewer dead children and more living parents in America, at least not in the section of the country where I live. The opioid epidemic in particular has ravaged whole communities, driving down life expectancy, depriving children of their parents and parents of their children. The human cost of this crisis is simply incomprehensible. And he goes on to talk about how that is a direct result mm -hmm. of the sort of globalized movement. And, you know, on that, one more thing I wanted to, to mention here, there is a book that I actually read. This book came out, uh, I, I think it was in the early 2000s. It's called A Year Without Made in China, mm -hmm. One Family's True Life Adventure in the Global Economy. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very good book. It's by Sarah Bor Borgiarni. Her name is... Um, her family tried to go an entire year without using a product yeah. from China. Mm -hmm. And... And they basically couldn't do mm -hmm. it, I mean, to make a long story sure. short, because it, it's in everything. And this goes back to what we were talking about in our Culture Corner segment. And when I mentioned what J.D. Vance talks about in his book, the idea that making things creates value. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the argument coming from uh, not just people like J.D. Vance and Tucker Carlson, but also people like Bernie Sanders, yeah. is that this idea that when we were an industri industrialization nation, when we were making everything, mm -hmm. people had happier lives. I think what Shapiro is, is his rebuttal is actually true as well. Like, we are living longer. We are living better. Yeah. We are walking around with computers in our pocket. Yeah. Life is objectively better Affordable now computers for, in our pocket. And, and affordable, right. Yeah. And life is object, uh, objectively better now for the for the vast majority That's of right. people. And like you said, some people are going to be displaced by that. Mm -hmm. And all you're guaranteed in America is the adventure of being an American, which is, and this goes back to that hillbilly elegy yeah. thing. The idea that should you be expected to short, sort of pick up and move mm -hmm. if your job becomes obsolete? Right. Honestly, in America, that's all you're guaranteed. Absolutely. Is, is the idea that you can, you can whenever, you know, you need a change in your life. Yeah. You can get up and move anywhere you, you, you can want. You retrain yourself or be retrained. I mean, and that's what needs right. to happen. You're talking about the opioid crisis. We need right. better 
you know, opportunities in retraining the workforce from the displaced, you know, economy. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, again, this is a very um, complex thing. I, I, I really think you guys should, uh, should read that article yeah. uh, I suggested by JD Vance. Look into a year without made in China because that will give you a good perspective on on that. You know, there's a whole movement now of conservatives that I've heard talking about how uh, Nixon, who opened up China for trade, how maybe that was a terrible idea for the world. Um, and in the wake of this COVID crisis, maybe they're right. Actually, <laughs> sure. I mean, look, um, historically, yeah. when you open up trade, you you open up trade for like a disease as well. It just mm-hmm. it comes with the territory, unfortunately, right. of, of globe globalization. Now, does right. you know, knowing that we should be better prepared for it. Right? Yeah, of course, we should, right? Yeah. Um, you know, one more thing I wanted to 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 sort of bring up here was, um, and I've heard I've heard people on the left talk about this actually more than people on the right. Sort of the Bernie Sanders re- left. Uh, our 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 buddy Paul that we had mm-hmm. on the show uh, has 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 said something like this to me before. When you think about the globalized economy and the fact that we're getting all these crazy cheap products from China. Like when in an iPhone, you know, a hundred different components come from China Mm -hmm. and they're essentially made by sweatshops in terrible conditions. And there is something to be said about the humanitarian crisis Mm -hmm. of that, that is taking place from all these countries like China and Indonesia and Malaysia that we're getting so many of these products from is that a humanitarian issue that we should be concerned about? Or should we just be concerned about the fact that our products are cheaper now? No, I think we, there is, there is again, as America, I believe in America as the world's policeman. And I think that when there is a humanitarian crisis, it's a call that we should heed. So I, I think that that's something to look into. And and by the way, I don't think we should put up with the sort of uh, two faced nature of a company like Apple who, you know, claims to help, the the country and the world and also you know their workforce is is supplied by underage uh kids and you know right. these places in these far far off Living places in terrible conditions yeah. yeah 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 one other thing i wanted to say and and i think we're going to get into this next week globalization also sort of goes hand in hand with the topic of automation mm-hmm. which is a, it's a different subject but it's the same concept where automation is taking jobs, displacing a lot of people, it's technology. And there is a movement on both the left and the right, um, the sort of populist right, Mm -hmm. to stop automation in its tracks. Tucker Carlson is a guy who got a lot of flack for saying that the government should shut down the idea of uh, self-driving vehicles because it would put too many people out of work. And this is a very highbrow conservative conversation to have because conservatives feel very squirmy about the idea that government should shut down any industry any involvement at all right any involvement at all however when you have a base of your party Mm -hmm. that is now looking at unemployment because you know there's a lot of truck drivers for trump you've seen them yeah Right. So what do you do in that case? How do you reconcile that? So we're going to come back and talk about that next week. Um, We're also going to talk about Andrew Yang and some of his ideas um, because he has some 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 really interesting stuff to say about this as well. Maybe we'll have a guest on next week. Um, So, yeah, I think we guys I think we gave you guys more than you even bargained for. Right. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, I'd love to have an economist (laughs) on at some point because breaking this stuff down. 
uh, into mm-hmm. economic theory is something I yeah. think it's really important to do. It is. We, we, we've been talking about having economists yeah. down. I'd like to have a non-partisan yeah. economist or at least uh, uh, someone who is from the right or the, and the left. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's something we have in the works. We have a lot of things in the works for you this season, yeah. including uh, the intermediary, which should be coming by the end of the year. Keep your eyes out. Keep your eyes out. Well, it, it, yep. Also, Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. We need to grow our Instagram yeah. numbers. And also, Jay, I should have mentioned this in the top of the show, mm-hmm. but I will mention it now. Happy Hanukkah. Oh, yeah. Because Han- the first day of Hanukkah is tomorrow. Right, no, happy Hanukkah. You get, you get, get your lakas out? The kid's excited? Uh, yeah, I'm going to make lakas. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to make with it yet, but I'm going to have to Probably some applesauce? Maybe, yeah, definitely applesauce and, and sour, sour creme. Sour creme, yes. Yeah, you got to have that. Yep. So anyway, guys, it was fun. Sorry we took two weeks off, but I think we gave you uh, more than your money's worth at this point. Yeah, go read so, some economic theory. Speaking, speaking of globalization. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> all right, anything else to say, Jay, before we uh, hightail it out of here? That's all I got. Announcer, take it away. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now. Yeah.